And please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. we prepare for the table of the Lord. I want to read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I, const- am const- as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. No one wants uncertainty in life. Instead, we want things that are certain, that are sure, and that are steady. Yet the reality is that our lives are full of uncertainty. So what can we rely on and trust in in the midst of so much uncertainty? Some people rely on and trust in money. Yet the Bible says in Proverbs 27, verse 24, riches are not forever. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings, like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. The economy goes up and down. We live with the reality of job insecurity. The Apostle Paul himself spoke of the uncertainty of riches in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Riches are insecure. Some people rely and trust in their health. 
Yet the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, our outer man is decaying. This is the result of the fall of man, the consequences of sin. Instead of the certainty of health, death is certain. It is appointed unto man once to die, Hebrews 9.27. Death is no respecter of persons. One virus, one bacteria, one disease, one stroke, one heart attack, an accident. These and many more events could lead us to a very quick and sudden death. God numbers our days. And we do not know how many we have. And even if we enjoy what some consider a large measure of health and length of years, still life is short and death is ever near. For you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Therefore, our health is uncertain. Some seek security and certainty in government and military might. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some boast in chariots and some in horses. Today, some trust in warships and fighter planes, weapons and nuclear warheads. Yet rulers, nations, and governments come and go. The might and supposed security of past empires have come and gone. The walls of fortresses have fallen, kingdoms have failed, they are uncertainty, uncertain. And so what is certain? The Bible says the world is passing away. And yet at the same time, we want certainty. We want certitudes. When we go to a doctor, we want him to be certain concerning a particular problem and prognosis. When there's a storm, children want certainty and assurance that they will be safe in the midst of it. We want and desire certainty about our jobs. We want certainty and assurance that our investments will come to fruition and not fail. We want to be sure our children are safe when they walk out the door. A lack of certainty and certitude can lead to a lack of peace and to worry and fear. This dominates the world, fear, anxiety. We want certitude. That is, we want complete assurance. We want to know that something is unfailing. And so we might ask, is there anything that's certain? The answer is yes. As Christians, we find great peace and comfort in things that we know for certain. These are truths that lead to certitude, which in turn leads to assurance. There are particular verities that are necessary to know and believe if you're to have true assurance. A verity is something that is true. Often when Jesus would speak, he would begin what he would say with truly, truly, I say to you. Or as the King James translates it, verily, verily. Or as it says in the Greek, it's amen, amen. This is certain. This is true. These are verities. And the Bible contains these verities, these truths. In the gospel, we have verities. 
And verities lead to certitude, and certitude leads to assurance. So in the midst of a fallen world, with so much uncertainty, we cling to truth. And truth, when believed and acted upon, gives us certainty and assurance. The certainty and assurance we need to live to the glory of God, no matter the circumstance. For example, is it true that God's word will abide forever? We know for certain it will, for the Word of God says about itself, the Word of the Lord endures forever. Is God's kingdom forever? Can it ever fail or be defeated? Psalm 45, verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. These are verities and certainties. And these verities, these truths led Martin Luther to say, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. Why? His kingdom is forever. These are verities. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. He knew the truth, the verity, the certainty. There were those who would be able to kill the body, but not the soul. Therefore, we're to let this mortal life go for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. The Apostle Paul had certain verities, truths, that that led him to let goods and kindred go, that led him to have this certainty and this assurance. Look at this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing from a prison cell. This would be an imprisonment that would lead to his martyrdom. His focus, though, is to stir up young Timothy to faithfulness. Timothy needed to persevere, not fear. He needed to proclaim, not be ashamed of the gospel. And so in verse 6, he tells him, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. Kindle afresh, Timothy, the gift of God. Fan it into flame. Stir up the embers. Stoke the fire. Give the same fervor to your gifts and calling as you once did. And then he reminds him in verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. This was Timothy's particular temptation and, and problem here. He was timid. The word here, timidity, means to, to be cowardice. A shameful state of fear, a lack of courage. Maybe Timothy was concerned that he would be imprisoned for the gospel as well. Maybe he was asking, Why well, have to suffer for Christ even to death? And Timothy, who had once been bold, is now timid and giving way to that timidity. His fire is flaming out. So the Apostle Paul tells him, This is not from God. God has not given us a spirit of timidity or cowardice or fear. And so he points Timothy to some verities, some truths, some certainties. God has given us a spirit of power and love and discipline. That truth, that verity, that certainty, he then says, has implications for your life. 
So he says, therefore, since that is true, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me, Timothy, in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. He's given us a spirit of power, so suffer for the gospel according to the power of God. So Paul seeks to motivate Timothy by reminding him of truth, of verities, and in particular, gospel truths and verities. So in verses 9 and 10, he says, who has saved us? And just read it in the manner that I'm certain was Paul's heart as he's seeking to stir him up. He reminds him again, sometimes we can read it, and I can do this as I'm seeking to exposit Scripture, and I want to be accurate in my hermeneutics, but you have to read it as with the... the the purpose for which it was written, he's seeking to stir him up. Do not be ashamed, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me, Timothy, in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy, be reminded who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Do you think Timothy already knew those things to be true? Was Timothy now just learning that God has saved us and called us, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace? No, but he needed to be reminded of these verities. Then he says, but now has been revealed. It was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now in time has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And what did he do? Timothy, be reminded of these verities. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. And all this, Timothy, is through the gospel. These are words of certitude, certainty. He saved us. He called us. And this, Timothy, is rooted in the sovereign plan of God in eternity and secured in time through the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared. He became a man. And he abolished death. He brought life and immortality to light. These are gospel verities, gospel certainties. This is what gave the Apostle Paul, assurance, even in the face of death, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. To stir us up as well. To stir us up to these certainties that we might be on solid ground. Let me just remind you of some of these truths before we come to the table of the Lord. And let me do so by First, enumerating some of the truths that are assumed in these verses, but then some of the truths that are asserted, but then the truths applied. First, we see some truths that are assumed. They are certain truths, but Paul assumes them in in these verses. That is, they're unspoken. They're not elaborated upon. What truths are assumed in these verses? Well, the reality of sin is assumed. Sin brought death. Why did death need to be abolished? Because sin brought death. Sin brought God's wrath. Sinners are in danger. They need to be saved. He speaks of Christ or God saving 
Sinners need to be saved. They need to be rescued because of their sin. And so the truths here that are assumed are are what we call the bad news of our sin. And there are verities, truths about our sin that must be believed before we can get to the good news of the gospel. And not believing or acting upon those truths assumed here but taught clearly throughout the Bible, has eternal consequences. The bad news must be understood and believed before the sinner can be saved. And so the truths that are assumed here are the fact that we are sinners, unable to save ourselves. And so he then begins to assert those truths very clearly. What truths? We cannot save ourselves. Verse 9, He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Let me just remind you, your works serve no value before God. Nothing you offer up to God will do you any good before a God who is holy, holy, holy. And therefore, for those who are convinced of the futility of trying to be justified and forgiven by their own supposed good works, they turn to another for salvation. So Paul asserts a simple yet profound truth. He saved us. This is a verity. He rescued us from the wrath that our sins deserved. He saved us and here's another verity. He called us. Here's that wonderful truth of the effectual call of God to the sinner by which the sinner is made alive in Christ. There's the gospel call, the proclamation of the content of the gospel and the command to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is that gospel call that declares what Christ has done in his person and work to save sinners. But then there is this call, he called us. The effectual call, this inward call. Here's another verity. God's choice to save was before the foundation of the world and therefore unconditional. That is not conditioned on anything in the center, but wholly and completely based on the sovereign grace of God. And you see that in the phrase, but according to his own power. That is, he saved us according to his own excuse me, purpose and grace which He granted us in Christ Jesus. When? From all eternity. He's just repeating in other words what He said in Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Of this I am certain. And this truth gives me assurance of salvation. God chose to save me before the foundation of the world. However, that salvation had to be secured and accomplished in time. The choice to save was before time. The work of Jesus to save was in time. Verse 10, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. We'll see this in Titus 2, verse 11. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. Grace has been revealed. Salvation is revealed. Here's another verity. In whom is this salvation? In Jesus and in Jesus alone. It's been revealed by the appearing of a particular person, 
namely our Savior, Christ Jesus. Our salvation wasn't revealed and accomplished by the appearing of Muhammad or anyone else. Jesus alone is the Savior. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. No one comes to the Father but through me. He appeared. He became a man. This is what we often remember this time of year, not because we're commanded to in Scripture. It's not a necessity. It's not commanded. But we often remember the incarnation of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He appeared. Christ appeared. Became flesh and blood. As it says in Hebrews 2 verse 14, Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same. Why? So that He would fulfill the the law of God for us. The first Adam disobeyed God and plunged us into ruin. The last Adam, Christ, comes, the man Christ Jesus, and fulfills the law of God perfectly and completely that his righteousness might be imputed to our account. And he laid down his life, a propitiatory death, to bear the wrath that our sins deserved. So what did Jesus accomplish for his people when he came and lived for them and died for them? Well, it says in verse 10, speaks of Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He came preaching good news. The good news of the kingdom, the good news that indeed the one who was promised had come, the lamb who would be slain had now come. And what did he do? He abolished death. This is a verity. He abolished death. In Scripture, we find there are three types of death, we might say. There's spiritual death, there's physical death, and there's the second death, eternal condemnation. Jesus abolished them all for His people. Consider spiritual death. By His saving work, Jesus abolished spiritual death for those he came, for whom He came to save. They were dead in trespasses and sins, but they've been made alive in Christ Jesus. We were doomed to die, and we will die. Because of sin, there is physical death. By the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. But Jesus abolished physical death. There's the certainty of the resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of those who've been raised from the dead. His resurrection guarantees my resurrection. That's why he says when he reveals himself to John in the revelation, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He holds the keys. He has authority over death and the grave. Old death, where is your victory? Old death, where is your sting? But he also abolished for his people the the second death. The second death in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 20, verse 14, chapter 21, verse 18, refers to eternal condemnation. But Jesus abolished that for his people. He bore the wrath of God for them so they would never experience the second death, eternal 
condemnation forever and ever. Jesus abolished death. This is a verity and a certainty. But it also says he brought life and immortality to light. Therefore, he said when he walked this earth, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. You'll never die spiritually and eternally. You will have life, eternal life. I have the power, Jesus would say, to to raise those, to, to speak and call them forth from the grave. And all this, according to 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, is through the gospel. This is the good news. There's so much uncertainty, but this is good news. These are verities. So these are the truths that are asserted here, but I want you to see these truths applied in verse 12. Paul then, turning from stirring up and stoking the fire of Timothy's heart, now speaks of his own certainties and sureties and assurance. For this reason, Timothy, I also suffer these things. I'm in prison. I suffer great harm and even the danger of the loss of life. But I'm not ashamed For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Here these truths applied. Paul would have said amen to the hymn, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. Why? Because he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him. I'm convinced of these truths. And therefore, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel and he's willing to die for the gospel. Why? Because he had assurance. There were things that he knew with certainty. And so he speaks words of absolute certainty. For I know whom I have believed. The word know here portrays confidence and assurance. Now, he's not just, it's not just a... a Empty assurance. I I know this. How do you know? I just know that I know that I know. No, I know whom I have believed. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. I believed in Him, His person and His work to save me. Not works of mine, but I've been saved by faith in Christ. He is the object of my faith. I know whom I have believed. And therefore, He's able to say, I'm convinced. That is, I'm persuaded. I have complete confidence. Convinced of what? Persuaded of what? What are you so fully persuaded of? That He, this one I've entrusted my salvation to, the one who has secured it by His life and His death, He's able to guard what I've entrusted to Him until that day. Just the words, He is able, are words of certainty. It's translated able. It could be translated, he has the power. Dunatos is the the Greek word. He has the power. He possesses all power. He's the mighty one, the almighty one. He is able. He has the power to do what? To guard what I've entrusted to him. The word guard means to keep, to protect. It was a military term, again, used of a garrison guarding and protecting the city. By His almighty power and His saving work, He's able to guard and protect what? What I've entrusted to Him. 
I've entrusted my very soul to him. By the way, this is the, the word entrust that Jesus used. Same Greek word that we see in Luke 23, 46 when Jesus died. He said, Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. This is the word used in 1 Peter 4.19. Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator. He's able to guard. I've entrusted my very salvation to him. I mean, is there anything more important to this? You can entrust your valuables. You can entrust your investments to a company. You can entrust all kinds of things to people. But to entrust your eternal security to someone. Whether you'll spend eternity in heaven or in hell, whether your sins are forgiven or whether they are not forgiven. He says, I've entrusted them to him in this glorious gospel. He's able to guard it. It's been safely deposited. I've entrusted these things to him. How long, Paul, until that day? God will protect his soul, the salvation of his soul, and not lose him no matter what he faced. So I don't know when that day is going to be, the consummation of my salvation, but I know that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day, no matter what I face. As Peter would say in 1 Peter 1.5, you're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, Jude 24. You see, His assurance was in Jesus Christ. I know whom I have believed. He's able. He can guard. He can be trusted. He won't lose me. Brethren, this is assurance of salvation. On what basis can anyone have assurance of salvation? It's based on the fact of these verities that we've just seen. The gospel, the person of Christ and what he has done. This is the ground of our assurance. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. This is the ground of our assurance. Our assurance of salvation is based first and foremost on this, on these verities, on these truths, the truths of the gospel, the personal work of Christ, that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. I've shared before a syllogism that, that helps, I think, in understanding the the two-pronged aspect of our assurance of salvation. A, a syllogism has a major premise, a minor premise, and then a conclusion. So here's the major premise. Jesus saves forever from the wrath of God all who place their faith in Him alone. The minor premise. I have placed my faith in Him alone. Conclusion. Jesus has saved me forever from the wrath of of God. Amen. That's assurance. Now we want to be able to say that we've been saved forever from the wrath of God. We want assurance of that salvation. But for the conclusion to be true, the major premise and the minor premise both have to be true. 
for there to be assurance that you're truly saved, then it must be true that God can save through the person and work of Jesus Christ, those who place their faith in him. It must be true that you placed your faith in him. If neither one of those things are true, that Jesus, we say Jesus cannot save, then I can have no assurance. And if I've not placed my faith in Jesus, I can have no assurance. Both must be true. But the ground of our assurance is that Jesus saves forever. We speak sometimes of this being the objective aspect of our assurance or the ground of our assurance. Can Jesus save? Can he save you from the wrath to come? If so, how long? Forever? To the uttermost? But again, the object is Jesus. And the central theme, the ground, is the person and work of Christ. If I were to say, all who have placed their faith in Greg Johnson alone have assurance that they are saved forever from the wrath of God. And you say, I place my faith in Greg Johnson alone. Therefore, I have assurance that I'm saved forever from the wrath of God. That would not be true. Why? Because I cannot save you. Therefore, there would be no assurance. The conclusion would be the same, but it would be faulty because the basis or the ground of assurance is faulty and unbiblical. But if you have faith in Christ Jesus, if He is the object of your faith, then there's surety and assurance. Because our assurance ultimately rests on the effectiveness of the work of Christ to save. Again, this is the ground of our salvation. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of this surety and assurance in Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you believe God's word? These are verities. And so tonight as we come to the table of the Lord, we come with certainties, verities. And we come with complete assurance. Now we can talk about, well, am I one who's placed my faith in Him? What is saving faith? And have I rested upon Christ? And what's the fruit of faith that I see? But before we do that, we need to be settled that there's one who saves. For if there isn't, then faith doesn't mean anything. For the object of faith is unable to save. So as we come to the table of the Lord tonight, I want you to consider the ground of our assurance and the implications of that. I want you to meditate upon the words of the Apostle Paul. I know whom I have believed. Do you know whom you have believed? Do you know from the Scriptures who He is? Do you know from the Scriptures what He has done to save sinners? Do you know whom you believed? Because when you know whom you believe, the Lord Jesus, in all of His glory and saving power, then you say, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded. He's able to guard and protect what I've entrusted to Him. My very soul, my very salvation. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground 
is sinking sand. This is the verity that we come to rejoice in tonight. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's rejoice in this verity, this truth tonight as believers. Let us together come to the table of the Lord. Confessing together, I know, we know, in whom we have believed. And He's able to guard what we have entrusted to Him until that day. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, I pray for believers that are here this evening as we come to the table. I pray that this will be a time, yes, of examination of our our hearts, our souls, but the examination, I pray, would begin first and foremost with in whom have we believed? Who is the object of our faith? In whom are we resting? I pray that, Lord, as we come to your table, that we would affirm again that our hope is not in ourselves, not in any supposed righteousness we have, for we have none, But our hope and our faith is in the person and work of Christ. His righteousness, His blood shed for us. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.